Hey everybody, welcome to the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com. As many of you know, this week marks the centennial of the National Park Service. So we headed to Bar Harbor, Maine, right next to Acadia National Park, to talk about the parks with James Kaiser, who has been thinking about the parks, writing about them, and spending a whole bunch of time in them for years. James is the best-selling author of four absolutely exceptional guidebooks to Acadia, Yosemite, Joshua Tree, and Grand Canyon, and he's also written a gorgeous guidebook to Costa Rica, which will make a lot more sense once you hear James explain why. You can find all of James's books at jameskaiser.com, that's K-A-I-S-E-R, and also get a taste of his work there. I'm serious, go check out his site. James is a crystal clear writer, he's a very good photographer, and as you'll see in this conversation, he's also really good at talking about the history, the significance, and the future of the parks. I really enjoyed our conversation and I learned a ton, and I think you will too. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about some upcoming stuff we've got going on at Blister. We're leaving on Tuesday to head down to New Zealand for some more on-snow product testing, and then we'll come home and finish assembling our print edition Winter Buyer's Guide. If you didn't see our Buyer's Guide last year, we're going to be making the digital version of it available for free on the website, so keep an eye out for that. But this coming year's guide is going to be even better, and we're certain that you will find it to be the most accurate and actually useful Buyer's Guide out there. Of course, if you become a Blister member, you'll automatically receive with your membership a print, copy, and digital copy of the Blister Buyer's Guide, along with a number of deals and discounts that will save you a lot of money this season. In fact, those deals and discounts basically pay for the cost of a membership, which is why we call the membership a no-brainer. So go to blisterreview.com to learn more about the Blister membership, what we're taking with us to New Zealand, and more. Now let's get to this conversation with our National Parks Guide, James Kaiser. What's going on at the very start of our conversation is James is signing a copy of his Acadia Guidebook for my parents, who are celebrating this month their 50th wedding anniversary. So I was in Bar Harbor, Maine to sit down with James and to celebrate the big occasion with my parents. Happy 50th, Mom and Dad. And at the very end of the podcast, I'm going to share a story about summiting Acadia Mountain with my folks that proves that James knows what he's talking about. So it's the centennial of Acadia National Park yeah. this year. So I said, happy 50th, parentheses, half an Acadia. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's all done. Well, we're here today. I'm happy to be uh, sitting here with James Kaiser, uh, and we are going to be talking a bit about national parks and uh in particular i guess um the acadia national park which we are a stone's throw from uh, right on right on the edge right on the border um so i'm very happy to uh to be here with james and and throughout this conversation you're gonna learn a bit more about who he is why we're talking about uh why we're talking with him and and what he has done but james let's talk a little bit first about sort of the national parks and and the history here. Um, we are just about to celebrate uh, their centennial uh, on August 25th. 
is it possible to give me sort of a brief history of the parks? Is there enough of a thread there to talk about? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, the national parks, uh, you know, there's so much to talk about. Uh, they're really, in a lot of ways, a reflection of America itself. Um, you know, the first the first national park was Yellowstone, Um but before Yellowstone was created as a national park, Yosemite Valley was set aside uh, as a protected area. And that was done by Abraham Lincoln in the middle of the Civil War. And it was really the first time in human history um, that a government had set aside a piece of land for the people to be enjoyed by everyone, specifically because it was beautiful. Um, you know, up to that point when people had protected land, it was often... Um, or nobles or kings, you know, it was private property. It was uh, something that only the very wealthy could use, um, you know, whether it was a hunting ground or just, you know, a, a place of relaxation. But it never had something been set aside for the people. Um, so, you know, Theodore Roosevelt later uh, talked about the national parks as, you know, uh, the idea was incredible because it was so essentially democratic you know, really reflected the values of our country. Um, and so it was an incredible thing to come along, you know, uh, basically a century after uh, the founding of America. So when we talk about the national parks and we talk about their history, it's a really important moment, um, not just for the parks, but for America as a whole. Which park has the craziest history, would you say? Does one of them stand out? The craziest history. Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, when we think about different parks, I mean, they're all sort of, they're all different and they all have their own crazy stories. You know, um, a place like Grand Canyon, uh, you know, was basically a blank spot on a map uh, for so long. I mean, it was like a part of the country that people just didn't go to. And when they looked at Grand Canyon, they thought, you know, nobody will ever go down there. That's just absolutely crazy. Um, and, you know, then you have stories of explorers like John Wesley Powell, who, you know, ran the first successful river trip through Grand Canyon. And when you read a story like that, uh, it's just, it's almost beyond comprehension. I mean, this was a one-armed Civil War veteran um, who really didn't have a whole lot of experience uh, running, you know, boats through anything. And he's going down through the Grand Canyon. And this is Grand Canyon before there were dams on the Colorado. Uh, <laughs> you know, you talk to modern day raft guides um, who have paddled the you know, Colorado, you know, over 100 times. And they just can't believe what he did. Um, and that sort of opened up, you know, the idea of Grand Canyon as this, you know, incredible place. Um, you know, really put it on the map, quite literally. Um, and, you know, then... Grand Canyon just has a lot of crazy stories, you know, associated with it from, you know, people that wanted to build a railroad at the bottom of Grand Canyon to the miners that went there looking for gold. Um, you know, there's sort of this ongoing history of people looking at it as something extraordinary and, you know, as something to be exploited. Um, so I think in a lot of ways that Grand Canyon, I don't know, maybe would get my vote for yeah. the most unique, interesting, crazy history just because there were so many um, incredible things that went on there. And I mean, even going into the 20th century, 
you know, some of the most epic environmental battles um, were fought there. You know, there were plans to dam Grand Canyon. They wanted to build reservoirs in the bottom of Grand Canyon. And um, that was sort of a defining moment, you know, defeating those dams. When was that? That was in uh, the late 60s uh, or in the in the middle late 60s. And it was, you know, uh, it, it was really sort of a coming together of the environmental movement, you know, rallying to make sure that this didn't happen. There were other dams that have been, you know, built on the Colorado Glen Canyon Dam. Um, you know, it's probably the most famous, um, and people really viewed that as something terrible that happened. Um, and so, you know, from the early history to, you know, the present day, there's just a lot going on there. Um, and actually, you know, as we're talking, National Geographic, uh, just came out with a huge article about, uh, Grand Canyon National Park, uh, this guy, Kevin Fedarko, who yeah. wrote a book about uh, the Emerald Mile, sure. and then uh, Pete McBride, who's an uh, you know, incredible photographer for National Geographic, they put t- together a brilliant piece, and it talks about a lot of these things. Huh. So, yeah, definitely worth checking out. Okay. Is it important to understand, might not be, but is it important to understand different designations, say, National Park versus National Forest versus, you know, for, for when, when you... Maybe if we're just rolling up to kind of look at some pretty scenery, uh-huh. we don't need to know this, but, but in terms of how these things are operated, funded, yeah. funded and the rest, no. what should we know about those? So that's a great question. And, um, you know, especially with national forests, national forests are very different than national parks or national monuments. They're actually under two completely separate government agencies. Uh, national parks, national monuments, they're under the Department of the Interior. National forests are under the Department of Agriculture. So, um, they can, you know, be, uh, you know, you can have timber harvesting in a national forest and that's part of, you know, the mission statement of national forest. Um, I believe it's land of many uses. And so it's not just preservation. It's also, you know, resource extraction. Um, so that's a huge difference between those two. And, you know, that's the incredible thing about national parks is they provide, really the world's greatest level of protection for a natural area. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure there's other countries that, you know, in writing will say that, you know, their national park is protected, but the United States does a really good job about actually enforcing those protections. Um, that's not to say that it's perfect. You know, there's ongoing threats and, you know, there continue to be issues in a lot of areas. Um, but it really is the world's highest level of protection, a U.S. national park. So would we then use, you talked about national parks, national forests, national monuments. Mm -hmm. Are we, are we good with those three designations? Are there, are there actually other ones that should be sort of on our radar or are those kind of the the triumvirate? Yeah. Well, those are sort of the biggest and the most famous, but the national park service also includes national historic sites, national seashores. Um, you know, they have a range of units and I think, um, it's over 400 now total. Um, there are 59 national parks, but there's, you know, over 400 total units in the national park, uh, system. So it encompasses a, you know, a wide range of places and all of them have been designated because they're special places. Um, they might not be, you know, quote, national park worthy. Um, but that doesn't mean, you know, they're not incredible, amazing places. And, you know, there's still, you know, some national monuments, uh, that, you know, could potentially someday become national parks because they are that spectacular. Um, but 
you know, getting to national park level is a little bit trickier than just designating a national monument. Say more about that, because what what are effectively at the monument level? I mean, you've already said it. The par- think of national parks as this has the highest level of protection. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about that versus a national monument. Yeah, so a national monument can actually be declared by a president. Um, so a president can simply say, you know, I declare this national monument. A national park requires an act of Congress. Um, and as we know from, you know, current politics, uh, getting Congress to agree on things is a tricky proposition. Uh, so, you know, in order to get to that level, you need a lot more co- cooperation. You need a lot more sort of political hustling and, you know, wrangling um, to get to that point. But a national monument, um, you know, can simply be designated. And I don't know, if I was a betting man, I would say we're probably going to have a few uh, new national monuments before... Uh, where President Obama wraps up his term, uh, but nothing has, as of yet, been officially announced. Best guesses? I, I mean, it seems like there's going to be a new national monument in uh, the North Woods of Maine. Um, people are talking about that. That's actually been a big issue here this summer. Um, there's a lady, Roxanne Quimby, who uh, was the co-founder of Burt's Bees, and she's purchased a huge tract of land next to Baxter State Park. And um, it's very clear that um, she and her son really want to get that turned into a national monument. I think the long-term thinking would be, ultimately, it would be a great national park. Um, But for now, they're pushing for the national monument. So, um, you know, John Jarvis, the director of the National Park Service, was up here this summer. um, And they were having town halls. And, you know, some Maine senators were involved. So generally, when, you know, those sorts of people start coming up and having a lot of meetings about this sort of thing... I think it's it's on the radar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, now I want to be president because I, I would, there's like my favorite burrito spot in New Mexico. Like I would just totally designate that place a national <laughs> monument. And then uh, actually another burrito spot uh, in, in Chicago. Those would probably be my first two acts of. But that Maybe that could be a new thing, a national uh, historic restaurant. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's pretty good. Let me ask you then about the difference between national parks and the National Park Service, just, mm-hmm. to, just to get clear on that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, national parks, Yellowstone was the first uh, national park, and it was, you know, just designated as here's a piece of land that, you know, we want to set aside for the citizens of this nation. Um, and other parks were created as well. Um, and what was happening was, different parks were managed by different agencies, right? So Department of the Interior, in some cases, you know, um, the Army was looking after certain places, and it was sort of a mishmash, right? It wasn't, there wasn't a central agency that was looking after everything. And I think by the time it got to about a dozen parks, people were saying, you know what, we shouldn't have just sort of this random assortment of agencies looking after the parks. We need a more unified organization that can better, you know, manage uh, all the parks. And so that's sort of really the idea. So that sort of gets back to that question of, you know, what's the local control versus the national control? Um, And I think the idea is for a a system that includes so many units that's so geographically spread out, um, you know, a centrally located organization um, can really do a lot of good things in terms of, okay, you know, uh, we need to do something about air pollution or we need to have requirements about you know, whatever it is, you can sort of 
you know, had that mandate come from on high for a group of different places and sort of, you know, all at once. Um, there were certain issues in which probably local control, you know, is more appropriate. Um, again, I'm not an expert on these issues. I don't know, you know, what the specifics are, but that's sort of the thinking of the National Park Service. And, uh, you know, there are people that say, oh, the park should be run by the states. And to me, that's like saying the army should be run by the states. You know, it's like it works better at the federal level. In your view, what are some of the biggest problems or issues facing the national parks? I and mean, we'll start kind of moving a bit to the to the present, but um, and we'll get into more of the sort of complexities of some of these things, right? Pr- protection, quote unquote, protection isn't necessarily like merely a good in the eyes of a lot of people, right? So we'll we'll get there, but what are the biggest problems or issues? facing the, the parks in your, the park system in your opinion? Yeah. Um, well, certainly this year, you know, the centennial of the National Park Service, when the parks have got so much attention and, you know, uh, <clears throat> so many people are planning vacations or trips to national parks, uh, overcrowding has really surfaced as sort of, you know, the big issue that people are talking about. And, um, and it's a real one, you know. Um, it is definitely, if you go to certain parks at certain places at certain times, um, it's going to get crazy. Uh, you know, here in Acadia, there's a famous spot, the Jordan Pond House, and they've just had horrible parking issues all summer long because so many people want to go there and there's not enough parking spaces. And last year for the first time, they started uh, shutting down the road to the top of Cadillac Mountain because, you know, there were too many cars. So definitely issues. Um, and it's something that, you know, uh, is a challenge moving forward because there aren't fewer people going to national parks. There are more people going to national parks. Um, you know, we have a bigger population, people all around the world are much more mobile, whole, whole bunch of Chinese, uh, citizens have enough disposable income to visit our national parks. And so there's increased pressure year after year. Um, I personally think that the biggest problem is not so much an overcrowding problem per se. It's an overconcentration problem in a, a in a few areas. Um, so, really, the biggest pressures are in a handful of the most famous parks, and you know these are places like Acadia, Grand Canyon, Yosemite, Zion, um, and in those places there are very famous viewpoints. You know, there's always like one or two or three places that everybody must go to. You know, you, you can think of like. Old Faithful and Yellowstone. Um, and so those places are swamped, you know, they're absolutely jam packed. But what I find amazing is that in all of these parks, you know, I've been there on 4th of July weekend, on Labor Day weekend, on the biggest, busiest times in the year, you know, on a weekend in August. And it is so remarkably easy to find peace and solitude. Um, really, all you have to do is move away from those super famous destinations. And Oftentimes when you do that, you find there's equally beautiful places that just aren't that famous. So I think, you know, a potential solution moving forward is how do you get people to understand that there are all these incredible places that they can go to either, you know, a different national park, not necessarily like the most famous or even within those parks, less famous places. So I think if, if people really considered that, um, that's a great way to sort of alleviate, at least to a certain degree, the overcrowding problem. Um, and by the way, that's where a good guidebook can really come in handy. Good guidebook. <laughs> yeah, we're going to, we're going to be talking about those. Um, uh, spoiler alert. Um, 
James Wright's guidebooks and uh, has written on Acadia, Yellowstone, Yosemite. Jo- I'm sorry, Yosemite, mm-hmm. uh, Joshua Tree yep. is a guide, and then um, Costa Rica, which uh-huh. you kind of broke your you broke your your pattern there a little bit. I did a little bit, but um, so we're going to talk about those in a minute, and I can I can tell you firsthand that the Acadia book is very very good. Um, Thank you very much. So. Um, yeah, it almost seems then that, I mean, it, given these, uh, the the overcrowded issues, we maybe just need to be doing a better job. Like, if you are coming to this park at this time, understand what you're walking into. And these would be the best kind of alternate routes, mm-hmm. right? And, Absolutely. And, um, yeah, so I guess, I guess we go to guidebooks on that front or... Um, I don't know, flying planes in the sky with banners that, that say, you know, look this way well, or I think walk this way. Even just, and I mean, in, in some sense, it's hard. It's human nature. You know, what do people do? They focus on, you know, the most famous places and those places get the most coverage and sort of this, you know, cycle that, you know, feeds upon itself. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's a way to explain to visitors, you know, uh, hey, if you visit on a really busy weekend or if you visit in August, it's worth checking out these alternate places because you're going to be dealing with a lot of crowds, you know, here. Um, and just sort of getting that idea into the, into the public consciousness, you know, uh, understanding that overcrowding is real. It's an issue. Um, and there are very easy and effective ways to avoid it. Um, you just have to know, you know, how to do that. And I think it does, frankly, and rather obviously get to the issue of like, why are people why are you going to a park, right? I mean, is it just to tick off some list of things you've seen or are you going there for a particular experience, right? And, you know, I was up on Cadillac Mountain yesterday and I was at Thunder Hole last night and that's a pretty interesting question, right? It's like I'm I'm lucky enough to get to spend a lot of time um in pretty solitary places and where you're the only person you'll see. And assuming that a lot of these people visiting the parks maybe don't get experiences like that nearly as often, that is, I think, one of the real things. And I don't, I don't have the simple fix to that. Right. So if I get on a bus and I go to see old faithful and then mission accomplished, get back on the bus, that is a very different thing than going to a park for the sake of actually getting into quiet mm-hmm. right and um that i don't know if you have thoughts about that but um I, I think that's a very real thing you know i think uh that getting that idea out there that you know it's more than just a handful of famous places it's more than just you know a handful of famous parks um you know i recently wrote uh you know an article for national geographic's website about the most beautiful uncrowded uh, or overlooked parks in the U.S. And it's remarkable. I mean, you look at some of the visitation statistics and uh, North Cascades National Park, which has over 300 glaciers. It's the most glaciers. It's like a third of all glaciers in the lower 48 states. It gets like 20,000 visitors a year. Um, That's a remarkable statistic. Um, Even in a place like Grand Canyon gets, you know, Grand Canyon is the second most visited national park with five and a half million visitors every year. Um, if you just look at people that spend the night below the rim, so that's hikers, that's mule riders, that's river runners, uh, it's something like 60,000 people a year, which would make it about the sixth least visited national park in the United States. 
So, I mean, that right there speaks volumes of sort of what's going on. You have millions and millions of people that are going up to the rim and they're just, you know, taking a look over the edge. And that's about the extent of their experience. Um, but there's this whole world of incredible experiences, you know, below the rim. And I've been all over Grand Canyon, you know, on the North Rim, the South Rim, hiking, river running, doing everything there is to do there. And that's where the most incredible experiences are is when you don't just, you know, go to the rim and look over when you actively get involved. So I think, you know, changing sort of, you know, uh, consciousness on that, that if you want to get a lot out of national parks, you really have to put a lot into it, whether that's with planning, whether that's, you know, physically. Um, and it doesn't have to be physical. Like you don't have to be a super athlete to enjoy some of these things, but you do have to take some time just to do some research and, you know, figure out, okay, what's, you know, what's some of the great overlooked aspects of these national parks? Yeah. Maybe this sounds like a weird question, but I, I'd like to hear rather than just assume that the national parks are like a, a good, like that that's given that this is a good, give me your best take on what are the best things about the parks and the park system? I mean, what, at their best, what we've talked about, sometimes they can be crowded. Sometimes maybe it's encouraging a, a kind of um, surface culture of, well, I rode a bus, saw, snapped a picture of Old Faithful, got back on the bus. Like that's not terribly compelling, mm -hmm. right? Give me your best version of the parks and what they, why they might matter, you know, what they might do um, if we use them correctly, viewed them correctly. Right. I mean, I think the power of the parks is they are places of discovery. Um, you know, they're places of discovery in terms of nature, you know, at its sort of grandest and, you know, most incredible. And they're places of personal discovery. Um, you know, maybe you see something that moves your heart. You know, maybe you have an experience, a challenging experience that you, you know, uh, complete a goal that, you know, maybe you didn't realize was possible and you learned something new about yourself. Um, that to me is, you know, the essence of national parks is, is places really, uh, to learn, you know, I view them as, you know, yes, the scenery is incredible and the viewpoints are magnificent. We all know that. Um, but these are incredible places to learn. And one of the things that fascinates me the most is the story behind the scenery. Um, and whether that's a story of native history, whether that's a story of geology, whether that's a story of, you know, wildlife and ecology and, you know, how our world is changing right now. Um, there are so many things to learn in these national parks and, you know, in a lot of cases, they're the only places where you can learn this stuff, you know, in, in cities and suburbs, a lot of this stuff has been paved over. And so you don't have the opportunity to explore and learn about these things. So, um, that to me is, is what I find most exciting and most incredible about national parks is just the opportunities for education. And, as a generalization, do you think that the the parks are doing a good job in that educational role? Or are you like, God, if only we could get X, Y, and Z done? I mean, how do you feel about that? I think the parks do a great job. You know, um, the interpretive ranger, you know, they have people uh, that their job is to, you know, introduce people to the parks and they conduct programs, free programs. Um and so you have that aspect of it. They have lots of great information on their website. They have, you know, incredible museums where they, you know, devote space to native history, to ecology. 
um, you know, uh, campfire talks and campgrounds. Um, they do a lot. There is a lot there for people to learn. Um, and again, you got to take the initiative, you know, you got to look at the schedule, you got to, you know, make some time uh, and take advantage of it, but it's all there. And, you know, especially given, you know, the, the confined resources uh, that the park service is dealing with, I think they do a really, really good job. So, um, people do some absurdly stupid things when they <laughs> go on vacation mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and, uh, turns out also when they go on vacation to national parks, do you have some explanation, uh, for the kind of no think, uh, behavior? You know, uh, so the one I heard recently, which I find so ridiculous is, um, animal maulings in Yellowstone have increased substantially over the past couple of years because, uh, so many people are now trying to take selfies with Buffalo yeah. or sorry, with bison. Mm-hmm. Um, that is ridiculous. That is absolutely absurd. Um, who are these people that think taking a selfie with a bison is a good idea? It's just nuts. Um, and you know, it's, it, it also gets tragic, you know, I mean, uh, there are people that get swept over the waterfalls in Yosemite every year because they were swimming upstream of the waterfall. And I don't know if this is so much, I don't know if people think they're going to Disneyland or a place like Disneyland where they think, oh, this is a national park. It all seems very like sanitized and it seems very, you know, protected. So, you know, whatever we do is going to be fine. Um, it's not like that. And frankly, that's, what's fantastic about national parks. You know, I was just climbing, I was hiking a trail called the precipice in Acadia and it goes straight up a vertical cliff. You have to climb these iron rungs and, you know, you're on these narrow ledges. And if that was on private property, you would be sued, you know, 20 different ways to Sunday. Uh, and it's great that national parks, there's a place that still exists where, Everything isn't, you know, guardrails and and bubble wrap. Um, That's important. And it's incredible that we have this resource. But I think you have a lot of people that don't have a lot of experience with the outdoors that come to a national park thinking that it's going to be an extremely safe environment. And I think that's where a lot of people get into trouble. Um, And, you know, more and more people are living in cities and they just don't really have the experience, you know, of being in an outdoor place. And even if you do have some experience, say you're, you know, very comfortable in the mountains, you come to a place like Acadia, um, you might not have any understanding about how dangerous the ocean can be. You know, a couple of years ago, I was standing um, over by Thunder Hole during a hurricane, and I watched people get washed out uh, to sea, you know, basically because there were huge waves and everybody had come to watch the huge waves crashing against the shore. But a lot of people were just right out there where the waves were breaking. I mean, it's incredibly dangerous. But they just don't have any experience with that. They don't know. You know, maybe they live in the Midwest or in the mountains. So I think, you know, that's another thing is that you're just in a different environment that you're not comfortable with. So, you know, it's a combination of uh, absurd situations, people doing stupid things. There are real tragedies. um, But, you know, lots of times it's people just don't know. So... Uh, it's tricky. I don't know what the solution is, um, but it's, you know, I'm sure there will be more ridiculous stories that we're going to hear in the years to come. Yeah. We're going to turn to specific parks in a little bit here, but, but just to, I want to think again, talking in 
general terms about the parks and and just take a minute to think about the future, right? The next 50 years or next 100 years. Um, what do you think about that future? Um, are you... Are you optimistic about this future, the trajectory of the parks? Do you think that things are sort of in good standing? Uh, are there, is there a jeopardy that you're concerned about? How do you view the future? Uh, so overall, I am optimistic. Uh, you know, these are places that have been set aside for perpetuity. You know, as Theodore Roosevelt said, for our children and our children's children. You know, they are established that way by design. Um, there are threats, you know, uh, and it's everything from, you know, development right outside of national parks to light pollution, um, to, you know, contaminant, contam- uh, contaminants, whether it's in, you know, the water or the air, um, you know, these are islands of protection, you know, in places where you have more and more pressure, um, coming from people and, that is the biggest challenge, you know, as we continue to grow population wise, um, you know, how does that impact the parks, you know, because they are protected, but, you know, we live in a world where, you know, the air, the water, everything, you know, is all shared. Um, so they're not going to escape, you know, the impacts that that has, um, you know, I'm sort of a techno optimist. I think that there's a lot that technology can do to solve or at least alleviate some of these problems. Um, but really, you know, uh, to me, the biggest cause of concern is, are there going to be enough people that appreciate the parks? And I mean, it sounds crazy to say this year when, you know, the parks are setting records, but, you know, you look at what people are doing, you know, spending more and more of their time with, you know, it's technology, it's staying at home, it's not going outside, you know, it's this idea of nature deficit disorder. And, you know, if the parks just get boiled down to, you know, a one day stop where you just look at a viewpoint... Um, then I think that is a threat. Um, getting people to connect with parks on a deeper level, I think that's the real challenge. But if you can do that, um, then I think the parks will be in good hands because you'll have people that care about them and people that um, understand them better. And so they'll be able to make better decisions when they go to vote. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about access. And, you know... And I, I will start at least with um, mountain bike access in parks. This is a issue that some folks uh, at Blister have been thinking about a decent amount and, and seems to be among bike advocacy groups. That's kind of um, heating up. Mm-hmm. But this issue of allowing um, bikes and bike trails in, in parks... Um, What's your, do you have thoughts on that? I mean, are, are you kind of staunchly on the let's protect and not develop these areas? Um, yeah. So, you know, first off, I'm not a mountain biker. Um, I enjoy it. You know, I've done it, you know, uh, a couple of times, but it's not sort of my, my thing. You know, I'm, I'm much more of a hiker and a backpacker. Um, that said, you know, I think that, you know, parks are places, you know, for people to, you know, enjoy the parks. Um, that's part of the mandate. And, you know, the founding document of the National Park Service contains this conflicting mandate where, you know, uh, national parks are there to preserve the landscapes for the enjoyment of the people. Mm-hmm. So you're always going to have this like conflicting mandate of preservation and enjoyment. Um, you know, I think it's sort of, it's a little bit like with development, 
um, there's good development and there's bad development. You know, it's not necessarily black or white, like yes or no, one or the other. How would those, you know, mountain biking trails be established? You know, uh, would they be on existing hiking trails that are very popular or not? You know, what's the scenario in which they're going to be used? I think that's what you need to look at in a situation like that. And again, I'm no, no expert, um, but I would like to think that there's a way that, you know, everyone can come to a, a compromise. Mm-hmm. And I mean, certainly if you compare it to how many cars go through national parks every year, uh, that's a lot of pollution. That's a lot of asphalt, um, you know, and nobody ever really talks about that or they talk about it very little. So, you know, if you're going to compare mountain biking to automobiles, you know, I'd say that mountain bikes are probably a lot less destructive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to see, um, we'll see how, uh, that conversation and debate continues to, to go. Um, but let's talk about Acadia, Mm -hmm. uh, since that's where we are. Mm -hmm. Um, and first of all, I mean, this is your, this is your home turf, right? And oh, yeah. you, you didn't just show up. No, 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 no. Uh, so I was born and raised in Bangor, Maine, uh, which is about, let's call it about an hour drive away from Acadia. Um, and I spent, you know, my childhood summers always coming to the park with my parents, hiking, biking. We have these things called carriage roads, uh, that are not like the mountain biking trails that you would find out West. Um, they're sort of smooth gravel roads where you, where you can go for a, a leisurely bike ride. Um, so we do that, um, you know, going on boat trips. Uh, there's just all this incredible stuff, you know, in Acadia. And of course, every time, you know, family comes to visit, go straight to Acadia. So I grew up playing in the park. When I was 18 years old, I got a job at a local restaurant and I spent uh, a summer living here on the island for the first time. And when I graduated from college, I uh, came back and I had this wild idea to write and photograph and self-publish a travel guide to Acadia because I knew it really well. And I didn't think any of the guidebooks on the market really sort of captured what the park was about. Um, And so I put it together. It became an unlikely bestseller. Um, And I've been writing guides ever since. And I've been coming back to Acadia ever since. So... You know, sometimes, uh, unfortunately, I can't be here during the summer, but it's the one place uh, I come back to again and again and again, and I just love it here. Tell me, tell me a bit more. Give me the for those who haven't been to Acadia. Give give me a a bit on its history and and how it came to be. And yeah, so Acadia is. It is a really extraordinary destination on the East Coast because most of the East Coast of the United States is sandy and flat. Um, You get up to Maine, the coast gets, you know, rocky, uh, it gets dramatic. You have all these, you know, bays that go in and out and it's, you know, uh, it's beautiful up and down the coast. But then on Acadia, uh, on Mount Desert Island, which is an island by about 50 feet at low tide, you know, there's just a quick little bridge to get you onto the island from the mainland. Um, there is a series of mountains. Um, there's over a dozen mountains running through the island, and that includes Cadillac Mountain, which is the highest point on the eastern seaboard. It's 1,529 feet. So technically there are higher mountains uh, you know, in the east, but not right on the ocean. So you have this extraordinary landscape uh, where you have a series of mountains that overlook the coast of Maine, which is one of the most beautiful coastlines in the world, Um, And every single one of those mountains has hiking trails, 
you know, going up and down and, and crisscrossing in this intricate web all over the island. So if you like hiking, it has some of the best hiking, you know, on the East Coast. You have these incredible coastal views where you're looking at islands and lighthouses and sailboats. Um, you know, you get up to the top of Cadillac Mountain, you have 360 degree views of the coast of Maine. Um, you know, it's remarkable. There's no other place like that on the East Coast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, say, say more about the, the initial, the, the original history of this place, right? I mean, Rockefeller, it's hard to talk about Acadia and not bring up John D. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the interesting things about Acadia, it was the first, uh, national park on the East coast. So all the national parks had been created West of the Mississippi up to the point when Acadia was created. And it was the first national park created entirely out of privately donated land. So really what happened was, you know, uh, wealthy people started coming to this island in the late 1800s. Uh, for a while, it was really, it was way more fashionable than it is right now. Uh, now, you know, people that are coming here, they love the outdoors. They love sort of to get away from it all. Back then, it was like the Hamptons. You know, I mean, it was a scene. It was a total see and be seen, spend a lot of money. You know, you're here for the socializing. And... But what happened was it drew a lot of wealthy people up here. And a lot of those people uh, looked at what was happening with the island. Um, they saw the development that was going on. Um, they saw the threat of logging. Um, that was a big one. And they said, this is a place that's incredibly special that needs to be protected. Let's do something about it. And so private citizens on their own accord got together, raised funds to buy a lot of the land on the island um, and did a very good job. Um, then John D. Rockefeller Jr. gets involved and he's got real deep pockets and he's got a strong, you know, conservationist philanthropist streak and he steps in and just turbocharges it, just, you know, pushes it into overdrive. And ultimately you have a situation where all this land was, you know, acquired and donated to the federal government to create a national park. Um, it's an amazing story. And uh, to this day, you know, the park, people are still donating land uh, you know, wealthy people here are incredibly engaged with the park, um, raise a lot of money for it. Um, and you know, that's great because, uh, you know, the park needs it and, uh, it helps keep this in a truly pristine state. Yeah. It's, it's still a remarkable place. I mean, it, I haven't, I came to Acadia, uh, pretty much every summer. My, my mom grew up in, in Maine. And so, and growing up, we would come every summer and it's amazing being back now after many years away. And the place still looks fantastic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it really actually looks exactly as I remember it. So, um, yeah, the, the upkeep of things. Uh, yeah. It has gotten a little more upscale. I will yeah. say that, uh, yeah. you know, when I was growing up, towns like Bar Harbor, which are right outside the park were, you know, very much sort of a middle-class family mm -hmm. destination and they still are, but it's definitely getting more upscale. <clears throat> you know, you see that with the restaurants or the level, of the restaurants, the stores, you know, definitely getting a bit fancier, but still, you know, a totally, uh, welcoming place for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out by the way, to the Jessup Memorial library. Yes. Uh, what a great place. I, I'm seriously thinking about just moving in there. And, oh. and they let dogs in. That's It's actually, I think, the first library I've ever been in. They are such a great resource on this island. And they do, um, 
speaker series over there throughout the summer. You know, another great thing about this island, it really brings together all these extraordinary people. So, you know, you've got the people working for the National Park. Um, they're a pretty active, educated bunch. Uh, there's a place called the College of the Atlantic, uh, which is a small, you know, liberal arts college on the island uh, that has one major, human ecology. Uh, it's very much about sustainability and, you know, uh, sort of man's place in, you know, the environment. Um, that adds an interesting dimension. And we have two world-class laboratories on the island, the Jackson Lab and the MDI Biological Laboratory. So you have these extraordinary resources to draw from, all these smart, talented people that have done extraordinary things, and a lot of them will wind up talking at the Jessup. Uh, so, you know, we've had speakers this summer, um, who was it, David Rockefeller, uh, son of John D. Rockefeller Jr., gave a talk about sailing uh, about two weeks ago. Um, I gave a talk about national parks. I showed, you know, a photo slideshow of all the parks that I've been to. Um, George Mitchell, former senator, you know, he gives talks on the island uh, and at the Jessup. And, you know, it's just an extraordinary community resource. And, you know, it's another thing that makes this place so great. Yeah. So how many parks have you been to? Oh, I lost count a long time <laughs> ago. We're going to go with several dozen. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so you you mentioned briefly your uh, history of how you ended up writing a guidebook to Acadia. Um, and I, I, <clears throat> I got to say, my, my parents who literally come to Acadia every single year, uh, I showed them this guidebook and they've been kind of poring over it and they... They have said, I swear, this is the best guidebook we've seen uh, for Acadia. So um, it it really is exceptional. And and by the way, the thing that they also keep talking about is just how good the photography is in the book too. So um, uh, yeah. By the way, where can we'll say this again at the end? But where, if people are interested in in uh, in, in any of your guidebooks, mm-hmm. with the Acadia book. Is there an easy place they can go to find this? Yeah, just go to my website, jameskaiser.com, uh, and that's K-A-I-S-E-R. Um, you know, I have information on all my books, lots of photos, um, you know, lots of great information about trip planning. If you want to go to any of the parks, there's lots of great free information there, and then links uh, where you can buy the guidebooks. So when did you, what year did the first edition you're on edition four now? Of yes, the, the fourth book. edition of the Acadia book. What year was the first edition? First one was 2000. Okay. Um, so you wrapped that first edition, and then how? what What was your next guidebook, and, and what year? So uh, after Acadia came out, um, and by the way, I just thought this was going to be a fun project for a summer after I graduated college. You know, something interesting to do, a great excuse to come back and, and play in Acadia, Um, And then I would have to go out and get a real job. Um, Acadia, the complete guide wound up becoming the best-selling guide to Acadia. And I realized, Hey, there could be something here. You know, maybe this is an actual career. Um, I didn't know that at the time because I was still sort of, you know, starting out and, you know, even the best-selling guide to Acadia is not necessarily enough to, you know, to, to live on. But I thought, you know, I want to give this a shot. I want to see if I could, you know, continue with this. So, um, you know, not a whole lot of national parks in New England. You know, Katie is the only one. So I went out to California um, and I started working on a guidebook to Joshua Tree National Park. Um, And that was an incredible experience because you want to talk about a different landscape, you know, compared to Acadia. Complete opposite. It's the desert. It is the desert. (laughs) I mean, this is one of the rainiest places, you know, 
uh, in the United States and it's on the ocean. Um, completely different world, um, which is very exciting. You know, it's a whole new landscape to photograph. It's a whole new ecosystem to learn about. Uh, and I really fell in love with it and, you know, had a lot of fun on that project and came out with the Josh Tree Guide. It became uh, and remains the best-selling guidebook to Josh Tree National Park. And at that point, I thought, you know, there's clearly something here. I'm just going to keep going with this. You're like, I'm the man. I'm just going to drop. I was like, well, I would be I a might fool. Just touch here. <laughs> I would be a fool not to continue yeah. uh, with this because, uh, you know, I think there's something here. Yeah. So wait, why Joshua Tree? Of it, all the places you could have picked, why was that second on the list? It was, uh, so I was moving out to California. I had friends that were out um, in Los Angeles. Um, and so I moved out there. They were sort of, you know, a community that I could tap into. Um, I was very curious too. You know, I just, I, that was a part of the country that had always fascinated me, you know, Southern California. I just kind of wanted to see it with my own eyes. Um, so I was able to, you know, be in a community of friends, of people that I knew um, who could sort of like take me in and show me around. Um, and Joshua Tree is two hours, uh, three with traffic, maybe four with traffic from LA. Um, so it was right there. And I thought, you know what, if it doesn't work out, um, I can still maybe, you know, look for some work in, you know, Southern California somewhere. Um, but you know, this gives me a chance to sort of, uh, you know, set up roots in, you know, in a city. I'd never lived in a big city before. That was something that was, you know, on my checklist um, and at the same time, work on this project and see, you know, if, uh, if I can get it going. Mm-hmm. How long is that Joshua Tree guidebook project? You're working on that from how long, what's the time frame? That was about, uh, a little over a year, okay. um, maybe a year and a half. Uh, you know, one of the things is I try to experience the park in all four seasons. Um, you know, uh, because I think it makes great photographs, you know, even in a place like Josh Tree, it can snow in the winter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, have some great, you know, photos from winter, uh, from the various seasons. Wildflowers are a big thing in the spring, you know, getting some amazing wildflower blooms. Um, and then, you know, also as I was writing these books, I was sort of stumbling through the process of learning how to write and photograph and publish books. So that was, you know, learning more about Photoshop, you know, learning more about becoming a better writer, um, learning more about the publishing industry. So, you know, that really took a lot of effort as well. It wasn't just strictly going to the parks and, you know, uh, you know, taking photos and writing. I mean, that's obviously the best part about my job. You know, that is, that is, I, every time I go out, you know, I, I love it when I'm out there, you know, hiking and, and experiencing it and, and getting to be in the parks. Um, but I would say 50% of, or more of my job is, you know, sitting at a desk in front of a computer like everybody else. Um, but, uh, you know, it's worth it for that other 50% of the time that I get to be out there playing. Mm-hmm. So then do you pretty quickly move on to book three? Uh, yeah. So right after Joshua Tree, um, I did Grand Canyon. Um, and that was really exciting because I'd sort of fallen in love with the desert. Um, you know, I gained this new appreciation for when I was in Joshua Tree and, you know, Grand Canyon is just taking the desert, you know, to another level, it's taking a lot of things to another level. Um, went out there, started, you know, uh, exploring the rim, you know, getting photos from all the classic viewpoints, all that. And then I had the good fortune to end up on a river trip, uh, through Grand Canyon. And this was, they don't allow trips of this length anymore for commercial outfitters, but it was a 21 day trip 
through Grand Canyon um, with a company called Oars, Grand Canyon Dories. And so um, we were in these dory boats, these beautiful, you know, wooden fiberglass boats going through the canyon. And that just, that just blew me away. I mean, that was another level of falling in love with deserts, with national parks, uh, you know, with the Southwest. Uh, It's just extraordinary. You know, I'd never, you know, I'd never in a million years imagined that landscapes could be so dramatic in the United States. You know, it always felt like, you know, this was something that you would see in Tibet. You know, this was something that you would see in someplace so exotic and so different, not in a place that everybody has in their mind of you roll up in a station wagon with a car full of kids, you know, and snap a picture at the rim. And that's really when I started to understand, you know, to really get the most out of national parks, you got to put effort into it and you got to put planning into it. Um, you know, sort of this awakening for me just in general about sort of my philosophy about parks you know, and, and how to experience them. And, you know, going through Grand Canyon for three weeks with these guides that had rode the Colorado for decades, you know, they imparted so much knowledge and wisdom and, and just emotion about being in a place like that. Um, so that was an extraordinary life-changing experience. Um, and that's really carried me through, you know, a lot of how I approach the parks today. Hmm. So, where are we now on the timeline? You, you finished that book. So that was around 2005. Uh-huh. Um, and then after that I did Yosemite. Uh, and again, you know, uh, it was sort of serendipitous timing, but Yosemite is another layer of complexity. Uh, you know, it's a big park. There's a lot of hiking, a lot of backpacking, um, you know, to really cover that park well. Um, you need a lot of, you know, uh, experience, uh, you know, photographing outdoor places, like understanding how to bring your camera equipment into the backcountry, knowing about backcountry safety, you know, all of these things. And so those other parks, you know, were really terrific stepping stones to get me to Yosemite where I could really do the guide that I want to do about Yosemite. And I mean, I hiked over a thousand miles throughout the park, um, you know, going on week long backpacks, uh, you know, all the day trails, you know, around the park. Um, and that was, again, an extraordinary experience. And Yosemite remains, you know, one of my absolute favorite parks. I mean, that place is just incredible. Uh, and it's more than just Yosemite Valley. Um, you know, there's so many extraordinary places in the backcountry that you can hike to um, and that people don't know about. People don't go there. Um, you know, there's still... So many places where even, you know, on 4th of July weekend, you can hike just a little ways and you've got the park to yourself. You willing to share one recommendation? Uh, Dewey Point. Dewey Point. Dewey Point's incredible. Um, it's, it overlooks Yosemite Valley. It's on the south rim. And you get to it off of Glacier Point Road. So Glacier Point, um, you know, one of the most famous viewpoints in Yosemite. And, you know, that place will absolutely be crowded on the 4th of July. But, you know, there are all these hikes that go, you know, to viewpoints on the South Rim and Dewey, Dewey Point's just one of them. And um, you can go out there and it feels like you got the whole park to yourself. You got a stunning view of El Capitan, um, you know, Bridal Veil Falls. Uh, and if you're, you know, if you're smart and you plan ahead and you get a, you get a backcountry permit, you can even spend the night out there. Um, yeah, it's great. By the way, have you seen the the film Valley Uprising. 
I haven't seen that yet. No, you, you need to. It's because it's just like one of my favorite things ever, and uh, it's just about the history of climbing in Yosemite. Oh, extraordinary and, history! <clears throat> I mean, it's yeah, I um, yeah, these people are just super badass, and you you I think you'll love it. Oh, I think yeah. anybody you you don't ne- if you've never climbed, it doesn't matter. Um, these characters and and what they're doing in this place and code of ethics mm-hmm. um, and how to climb and, mm-hmm. and uh, whether it's okay to be, you know, nailing pieces into the rock mm-hmm. and whether it's not. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. I can't like, I, I love that film so yeah. much, but. Well, and you know, the history of rock climbing in Yosemite it is such a remarkable thing because when these guys started out, you know, they were viewed as renegades. You know, the park service was not no. happy with them no. at all. And, now they're celebrated, you know, like these are people that are viewed as sort of, you know, uh, cultural and physical trailblazers. And it's great because now the park has taken a more sort of open approach to everything. Um, but it's an interesting story because it, it involves something, you know, very modern dilemma, you know, um, what's access and what's appropriate and what's not and how do parks evolve? How do they change, you know, in the modern day? And, you know, this is something that, you know, I love writing about the history of parks. You know, my books, I always say most travel guides put things like history and geology and ecology uh, in the back. They shove it in the back as like an afterthought. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like, oh, by the way, here's some info. I put all that stuff in the front because to me, that's some of the most fascinating things, you know, about national parks is, Here's this incredible geologic history. Here's this incredible native history. You know, here's all this information that you really need to know, you know, to really appreciate it. And lots of times I think people have the impression that, okay, when the park is founded, that's when the history stops. You know, you had your native history, you had your explorers, and then park surface, you know, park uh, is founded and boom, it's just like, now it's preserved. It's almost like pickled Mm -hmm. in time, right? And the rock climbers of Yosemite are a very fascinating example of how history continues to move forward and exciting, interesting things continue to happen um, in national parks. Uh, so, yeah, I can imagine that, uh, you know, it's, it's a fascinating documentary. And, yeah. and I try to include a lot of interesting information about that in my Yosemite book. Cool. Yeah. Um, but you got to see that thing. Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, by the way, what's the most famous park that you have not visited? Glacier. Glacier. Yeah. That is number Don't one. Don't worry on the about list. that one. I hear, there's, <laughs> I hear there's nothing cool going on in Glacier. Uh, everybody, you know, everybody I've ever talked to who's gone there loves it. Yeah. Um, people that have traveled to so many national parks say it's their favorite. Um, yeah, I am, uh, I'm just looking for the, the, the perfect excuse to get there. Uh, there's just so much good stuff going on in Acadia this year. I couldn't make it. Yeah. Um, so that's the most famous park related question. What one or two parks do you most want to visit? Uh, so there are several, uh, that I would love to visit. Um, North Cascades, uh, three hours from downtown Seattle by car, Fewer than 20,000 people go there a year. Um, the landscape just sounds extraordinary. Um, American Samoa, uh, our most far-flung national park. It is literally in the South Pacific, like, you know, something like a 1,000 miles away from Hawaii. Um, I believe it's the only national park located south of the equator. Um, 
white sand beaches, lush tropical rainforest, incredible corals. That sounds like one that uh, I would love to go to. Wow. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I know. I have a note. Yeah, new new spot. Just went to the top of the list, I think. Um, well, I'd also love to check out uh, Gates of the Arctic. Uh, you know, the only national park located entirely above the Arctic Circle. Um, again, something like 15,000 people a year go there. Um, no roads or trails. You know, it is just backcountry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it looks extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I would love to make it up there. Mm-hmm. So when, when do you wrap up your work on the Yosemite book? Uh, so that one came out in spring of 2007. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, I'm making this sound like the only thing you ever do with your life is write guidebooks, which I, <laughs> I, I will trust that's not true. But um, so then the next... Are we are we at the Costa Rica book or where when do we Yeah, so um by the time Yosemite came out, I found myself in a very unique situation. Um you know, I started out self-publishing. Yeah, I still self-publish um my books, but uh I started out self-publishing because there was no way a publisher was going to, you know, publish me. Like what experience did I have? I didn't have any. Um and Self-publishing is very tricky because how do you, you know, where do you store the books? How do you get them to bookstores? You know, what's the distribution? All of that. And I was very fortunate in that by the time Yosemite came out, I had teamed up with a big book distributor. um, And they handled the warehousing of the books. They handled sales to bookstores. um, You know, they handled all sort of like the, a lot of the physical business aspects of everything which suddenly freed me up to live anywhere in the world that I wanted. Um, they handled all of that. I put the books together, I published them, and then they took it over from there. Um, and, you know, that was a very interesting moment when I realized I can live anywhere in the world that I want to at this point. And um, that was when the seed was planted of going to Costa Rica. Hmm. Had you been? Uh, so I had. I went in 2006. A yeah. friend invited me down. Uh, a friend of mine, his dad went down there years ago and, you know, started an eco lodge. And my friend had always told me how much I would love Costa Rica because he knew how much I love national parks and the outdoors. And so we go down there and it was just extraordinary. You know, I mean, it's an incredible country. And I thought, wow, I got to figure out a way to, to do a guidebook down here. Yeah. So... <laughs> Yeah, and I, I've been, I was in Costa Rica, you know, several years ago, and, and going through your book, I was like, man, it's it's time, time time to revisit. Um, and again, the, the, the photos, like the Acadia book, the photos in there are, uh, I promise if you p- pick the book up and just, start, so far I'm just looking at the pictures. I barely started <laughs> to actually read any of your stuff. When you read it, there's some good info in there. <laughs> I believe that's true. Um so you you clearly don't your 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 work here isn't merely dedicated to writing guidebooks of national parks. I mean, it's was. Do you think Costa Rica the exception? Uh, will you you know where are we? What are you up to these days? Yeah, it, I want to write more guidebooks of national parks. Um, you know that's where I'm at. Uh, you know, I Costa Rica was an incredible experience. Um, you know, it was an entirely new ecosystem, um, and to me, that's super fascinating. Um, you know, what is it like? photographing a tropical rainforest. You know, what's it like learning about the cloud forest? Um, these are just ecosystems that we don't really have 
um, in the U.S. I mean, there's some, you know, there's rainforest in Olympic National Park, but, you know, a uh, tropical rainforest is an entirely different uh, place. And so, you know, for me, a lot of it was a personal experience, like getting to know these other, you know, environments that are very prominent, you know, throughout much of the world. And, you know, the more I learn about that, the more I can sort of bring that perspective back to U.S. national parks and sort of, you know, have a much better understanding of where they fit in the world. Um, but, you know, Costa Rica, 25% of the country is protected. You know, that's national parks, that's uh, wildlife reserves. That's an extraordinary percentage. That is a truly extraordinary percentage. You know, the uh, amount of land in the national park system in the U.S., I think, covers an area slightly larger than Italy. Um, that is not a quarter of the United States. Um, What's the story there? When did that when did 25% of Costa Rica become protected? Yeah, so it's a really fascinating story. Um, Costa Rica's national parks really didn't start going until the late 60s, early 70s, and they were essentially the brainchild of two Costa Ricans who had come and worked in the national parks in the United States. Um, so they came, they worked, I think one worked in Grand Canyon, I think the other one was maybe Smoky Mountain National Park, and uh, they saw the park system and they thought, this is incredible. This is a remarkable thing. And so they went back to Costa Rica and said, we got to do something like this in our country because our country, you know, has so many incredible places. Um, and at that point, Costa Rica was really going through a perilous period. Um, there was a lot of deforestation going on. You know, a lot of rainforest was getting chopped down for ranching and agricultural land. And, you know, it was a bad situation. And uh, they really, you know, uh, led the charge to create protected areas. And since then, uh, the amount of rainforest in Costa Rica has been increasing over the decades. So Costa Rica has reclaimed a lot of the land that it had, you know, quote unquote, lost, um, thanks in large part to these national parks and preserves. So, you know, yes, it's, it's different. It's not, you know, U.S. national parks, but Costa Rica has, um, it's filled with national parks. It's almost like the entire country is a national park. So in a lot of ways, it still goes with the theme of my books, which is, you know, um, outdoor, active, ecotourism, adventure, adventure travel. Um, and really, you know, I'm taking the same approach, which is lots of amazing background information about the ecology, the wildlife, the geology, but also with Costa Rica, the culture, the food, you know, all these interesting things. Um, so taking that same approach to Costa Rica um, to you know, create a book that hopefully encourages people to go down there to experience the country as an eco-traveler, not just as a tourist sitting on the beach drinking a tropical drink with a you know, uh, paper umbrella in it. Yeah. Um, by the way, what's your? Do you have a background in geology? Did you? Was this all just kind of self-taught? Uh, so my major in college was engineering. Um, so yeah, Duh, yeah, no. <laughs> very, that was not the, the path I was expecting to take. Um, but you know, I had always loved, I'd always done a lot of studio art. So, you know, the photography was just something I'd, I'd been interested in. Um, and I was always fascinated by, you know, the outdoors and, you know, natural history and all of that. So it was really just an, an extension of the things that I was passionate about. Um, I just happened to have studied something that I felt obligated to study. Uh, <laughs> you are passionate about engineering? I, I actually am. You know, I, I, I love engineering too. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff. I don't denigrate it at all. Um, I just, my life just happened to take a weird side direction. Um, 
and I've been going with it ever since. Hmm. But I am actually really fascinated with, you know, new technologies and how they can be applied to, you know, learning about and experiencing and appreciating national parks. You know, I don't think that they necessarily have to be at odds with one another. I think there's probably going to be new technologies and things where you can uh, better teach people about like geologic processes, you know, um, how the landscapes evolve. Um, that to me is really exciting. And um, at the same time, it has to be balanced with you can't be tethered to your device, you know, all the time and experience nature. Um, but I don't think it should be written off. And so hopefully at some point my engineering background will, you know, help me with that yep. um, going forward. So when does Costa Rica, that book comes out when? So I thought that was going to be a two-year project. Uh, it turned into a five-year project. Okay. Um, good. I was waiting for the part where things got hard for you. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, it was, I just bit off more than I could chew. Yeah. Um, it, was, <laughs> it was another layer of complexity. Um, you know, and a lot of it was to write an incredible guide about Costa Rica, I had to, you know, become fluent in Spanish. Uh, I had to really understand the culture. Um, you can't do that in a year or two years. Um, it takes longer than that. And at the same time, I was also, you know, busy updating, you know, all my national park guides. So, you know, that takes time. So that sort of pushed things back. And then, um, you know, even though Costa Rica is a small country, it's about the size of Vermont, New Hampshire put together. Um, it has a lot. Oh, yeah. It has a lot. Yeah. And the number of <clears throat> ecosystems packed into such a small area, it's off the charts. Yeah. And the amount of wildlife, um, it's just extraordinary. So there really was a tremendous amount to cover. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to half-ass it. You know, I wanted to make something that I was going to be super proud of that would really stand out from other guidebooks. Um, and that just took a lot of effort. <laughs> mm -hmm. So when did you wrap that? So that came out, the first edition came out in 2013. Okay. And, uh, yeah, second edition came out in 2015. And then this year was all about getting all my national park books, you know, ready for the centennial. You know, I wanted to come out with brand new editions. Um, there was a lot of new content that I was really excited about putting into to the guidebooks. And then also, you know, I've been focusing a lot on, you know, building out my website, you know, posting more information on social media, sort of managing the digital transition because that's been a huge change from when I started out, um, and even, you know, five years ago, yeah. you know, seven years ago. So, um, so there's been a lot of catch up since yeah. I came back from the jungles of Costa Rica. So now to talk more about the just process of building a guidebook and going about doing that. And then I'm frankly fascinated with that process of updating these things. Are you lucky enough to be getting like really smart, good feedback from users who are then writing in to be like, Hey, I think thus and, you missed thus and such, or this wasn't my experience. And you're like, sweet, thanks. And yeah. then, or, or is, um, how is that process of updating? What's that look like? Uh, well, you know, a lot of it is, um, me going through and constantly learning about the park. So I'm always reading more about them. You know, I'm always, you know, I'm a voracious reader. And so sometimes you stumble across new information. And it's like, oh, that would be really interesting to put into, you know, the books. And some of it is stuff that I just never got around to the first time. Like, you know, now all the, the books have information about astronomy in the national parks because national parks are some of the best places 
to see the stars, they now are some of the places with some of the darkest skies. Um, in a lot of major cities, you can't even see the stars. So I thought that was really important. You know, we're losing the ability to see stars in a lot of urban areas. I need to include information about this. Um, but as far as, you know, user feedback, the great thing about, you know, having an active website and, you know, being on social media where lots of people can find me is I get feedback all the time. So, you know, mostly it's users just writing and saying, hey, you know, we got your guide. It helped us have a great trip. Thank you so much. But every once in a while, somebody will, you know, send something interesting like, hey, you know, I noticed, you know, this thing you're writing about the history. And while that's technically correct, you might consider, you know, this angle as well, or they'll throw in an interesting fact, or you might consider this. And it's super helpful. And there are really smart people out there that, you know, have a, a real specialty in, you know, certain areas. And I love it when I get those emails. Yeah. You know, immediately I, you know, uh, go to work, I do some more research, you know, I update it, add it to the book. Um, and I get excited for when the new edition is going to come out because it'll have, you know, even better information. So what do you personally appreciate most from a guidebook? Um, or put differently, what makes a guidebook good, good or bad in your opinion? You know, I think uh, you can just sort of tell when somebody's passionate about a place. And it's that passion uh, where somebody is not just doing the minimum, you know, they're not just sort of on a deadline and, you know, they got to get the information, you know, into their publisher or whatever. Uh, it's when somebody really, truly cares about it. Um, that's what I love to see in guidebooks. And, you know, I think Rick Steves, you know, does guidebooks to Europe. I, that guy's great, you know, like he can be a little cheesy sometimes, but uh, he's so passionate about what he's <clears throat> writing about. And that just inherently comes through. Mm -hmm. um, so I love it when I see people with, you know, sort of domain expertise, they know something, you know, he knows Europe really well. Um, and he's a, and he's super passionate about it. And it comes through. I love it when I see that in a guidebook. Um, there's a guidebook I bought. Oh, it was a couple years ago. And it was called it's called like the people's guide to Mexico. And it's this great guidebook that I think somebody uh, first published in like the, net, the late 70s or something. They've been doing it ever since. It's got all these great little like, you know, fun hand drawings in the pages and it's got a real witty attitude and, you know, kind of snarky sometimes and also includes lots of good information and, and somebody who's clearly lived in Mexico and has an understanding of the culture. That's great, you know, because so many, so many of these big corporate guidebooks, you know, they're just homogenized, you know, they have their template and they want people to stick to it and they don't want to throw out an opinion that's going to be too controversial or, you know, too um, politically incorrect or whatever it is. And, you know, I just think that the whole point of travel is to go out and experience new things and, uh, you know, have interesting experiences that you're not necessarily going to find, you know, by doing the same thing that everybody does. And so that's, you know, what I look for in a guidebook. So I, I'll, we'll, we'll talk specifically about your Acadia book. Have you gotten in trouble I mean, are there, are there certain restaurants or businesses or people who've come after you? Wait a minute, why weren't we included? Or we don't like this description. Or again, users maybe coming after you saying, how dare you not include our favorite? Like I would come after you if you did New Mexico and, and there was nothing on the pantry. Like yeah. We'd fight. Uh -huh. But uh, is that 
You know, so uh, the first edition of the Acadia Guide, there were definitely uh, some things that uh, I had written that some people were not uh, thrilled about. And it was nothing that was, you know, it was nothing so scandalous. It was just sort of, I hadn't really considered, you know, hey, this is like somebody's business. This is like what they do for a living, Um, you know. That's going to be tricky, right? It is tricky. And... You know, um, what I try to do is, you know, really when I'm going to write something that's like highly opinionated, make sure I'm understanding it from all angles. You know, you can still include opinionated information. You just got to be damn sure that you know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think there were a couple cases in the first edition, you know, when I was 21 years old, you know, writing a guidebook for the first time that I didn't have that awareness. And I was probably like a little bit cocky and a little bit, you know, not considering things from other people's standpoints. Um, and you know, that's been a learning experience, but I think that's just a life experience. You know, I think everybody goes through that just living. And conversely, I mean, I think, I don't know that I would want to read a guidebook that didn't express some pretty strong opinions. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's, seems like part of a good guidebook is figuring out some balance of like this, this guide seems interesting enough to actually have an opinion and mm-hmm. I, and and part of it is getting to know that person that personality a bit and not being afraid to show that i mm-hmm. if it gets too kind of objective and clinical it i'm not sure that's a it's like you were talking about that's exactly the thing you were saying you don't like from some of the kind of you know larger company guidebooks maybe exactly yeah and and that's the thing i think that a lot of those you know, big guidebook companies, you know, they are just sort of like terrified of offending, you know, anyone. And my opinion is it's okay to offend if you really, really know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, whenever, you know, I research stuff and something I come across that it's like, all right, you know, this could be, this could be construed different ways, you know, just double, triple check all the facts and make sure you've got, you know, all the angles. So here's kind of a flip question. Is there in, in any of the books you've done, um, you know, so I kind of want to direct this to the Acadia book, but, but of any of the books, is there a particular hike or restaurant or bar or something where you're like, this is awesome. And users have seemed to be like, it's not that awesome. And you're like, screw you, you're wrong. <laughs> this would be the equivalent of the pantry for me, I think. Yeah. But like, you're just like, I don't care what you think. This place is rad. Yeah. And <laughs> have you ever had that? That's an interesting question. I'm trying to think of something that I really like that... I mean, no one's ever written me with something like that. I I'm going to find something. You go for it. <laughs> and then you, you go just for be it. like... Yeah. Jonathan Ellsworth hates this, but he's wrong, and you should go here anyway. Yeah. Um, God, I can't think of anything. No. Okay. All right. Um, I've got to back up, by the way. You know, uh, I should have asked you this earlier, but we were t- when we were talking about, you know, we are in uh, a pretty high season here um, in Bar Harbor, and, you know, you've, I think, said well, and I think it's an important thing, like understand that if you go to national certain national parks at certain high seasons um you're going to encounter crowds you need to understand that there's places you can go uh where you still mm-hmm. even in high season not mm-hmm. for acadia mm-hmm. um one suggestion of a place where you kind of think my god people like this would be this is a phenomenal experience over yeah. here um I mean, I'll tell you, 4th of July weekend, you know, on the 4th of July, uh, 
the Park Loop Road, which is sort of the famous, you know, most popular part of Acadia, was jammed. You know, there was traffic in Bar Harbor. I mean, it was madness. I went over uh, to a place on the other side of the island called Acadia Mountain, uh, which is one of my favorite hikes in the park, and there was barely anybody on it. You know, that was the 4th of July. That's yeah. as busy as it gets on yeah. this island. Um, so that's not too hard. And that's not an, that's not like a hike that nobody knows about. You know, that's a fairly famous hike among people who know Acadia. Um, but you just have to be aware of these places. And it, that, that's the extraordinary thing is it's not that hard. It's really not that hard to avoid these crowds. It's just people gravitate to, you know, the one or two famous things that they hear about. And, you know... I, I don't know if it, it's got to be just human nature. I don't know what it is, but um, it does not have to be, doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great point. I mean, I think, <clears throat> I think it's, it is a simple and obvious thing, but for, for those who just think, ah, national parks are overcrowded, like do your work. Um, and, uh, well, and you're really I, only talking about like the top 10 parks, Yeah, you know, as far as visitation. And by the way, where does Acadia fall? I mean, Acadia is one of, if not if not the smallest parks, it's one of the smallest. It's right? very small, yeah, uh, relatively speaking for yeah. a national park. Um, and yet, it's one of the, so it's one of the, I think it's something like 46,000 acres. I think it's around there, yeah. But it's, I mean, in terms of most visited, it's, it's in the top 10. It's in the top 10, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so right there, you know, you're looking at a concentration problem. Yeah. And again, I'll just go back to what I said before. Fourth of July, I was able to find a spot, you know, with plenty of peace and quiet, and it wasn't an issue at all. And that's just one place. I mean, Skudik Peninsula, the only part of Acadia on the mainland, um, you know, is across the bay. And that's another place you can go to, and it's got like one-tenth the visitors, you know, that, uh, that Acadia on Mount Desert Island has. Um, so yeah, it's it's an overconcentration problem, and uh, people just need to be a little bit more creative. And and again, you know, people say, oh, national parks—they're all overcrowded. Yes, there are crowded places in the most popular parks, but there are 59 national parks, yeah. and most people can probably only name about 10. Yeah. And there are so many extraordinary ones that are just off everyone's radar mm-hmm. um, for unknown reasons. Mm-hmm. They're amazing. They're incredible. You know, Channel Islands is off the coast of Southern California. Southern California is one of the most densely populated areas in the United States. And Channel Islands, which are like 20 miles offshore, is, I think, they're the least visited national park in California. Hmm. Um, It's just a a lack of creative thinking. Hmm. Um, So what's the current project or what's the next project? Are we talking about this or is this under wraps? I've got some ideas. Uh, It's under wraps for now, but uh, definitely another national park. um, And yeah, really, really exciting about it. For now, though, uh, it's still focusing on, you know, the centennial. And, you know, there's so much, you know, uh, here in Acadia, there's just so many celebrations and events going on. Um, And at the same time, I'm really busy, you know, writing articles for various people about the national park. So do you want to shout out, you mentioned, you mentioned one of the, I think, I think most recent articles you've done, but you want to mention one or two in particular for people to check out? Uh, well, if you go to nationalgeographic.com, um, you know, I've written a couple articles about national parks. Um, what were they? Uh, the most beautiful overlooked national parks. Uh, so you can search for that. Um, America or national parks, America's best travel bargain. 
um, where I talk about why national parks are such an incredible travel bargain, which they really, really are. Um, you do not need a lot of money to enjoy national parks, which is another incredible thing about them. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, those are two of, uh, two of my favorites. Can I ask you some random questions? Sure, go for it. <clears throat> okay, you get three weeks to go either to Europe or Asia. Where are you going? Uh, Asia. And anywhere in particular? Uh, I'd love to go to Burma. Uh, or Myanmar, sorry. Uh, you know, that seems like it's changing real fast. And um, I actually had a friend who works for the State Department who lived in uh, Burma, as the State Department calls it. Uh, or used to call it. I'm not sure what the status is now. But uh, I never visited him. One of my biggest travel regrets ever. So, yeah, I'd head over there. Okay. Um, I need to ask you some broader main questions. Mm -hmm. We might get back to random. But yeah. um, uh, main girls from the North County. <laughs> is it true that they are the best looking girls in Maine? Uh, I'm going to go with sure. <laughs> okay. Have you ever heard the expression, wicked hot potato fama girls? Uh, no. Okay. That's a shout out to James Seymour, by the way. It, uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, yeah. I find nothing surprising about this statement. I've just not heard it. Uh, I've not heard those words in combination before. But as a, but as a guide, as a, as a guide to, a, uh, you know, a, a guide of Maine, as it were, uh -huh. you, you aren't ready to go on record to say that North County girls are the best looking girls in Maine. Uh, I don't know that I am qualified to answer that question. <laughs> All right. Um, another main question, um, Alan's coffee flavored brandy. I'm so glad you brought this up. And my question is pretty much what the hell? Yeah, that's everyone's question. Um, uh, presumably even the people that consume massive quantities of it. So Alan's coffee brandy, for those who don't know, uh, is a, it's basically a cheap Kahlua knockoff. And uh, over the past 20 or 30 years, the 750 milliliter bottle of Allen's Coffee Brandy has been the best-selling liquor in the state of Maine. The number two best-selling liquor in the state of Maine is the 500 milliliter bottle of Allen's Coffee Brandy. I believe number three is the 750 milliliter Smirnoff. And then number four is the 250 milliliter bottle of Allen's Coffee Brandy. Uh, I believe... Uh, enough bottles were sold. It's something like 1.3 million bottles were sold last year. That's enough for every man, woman, and child in the state of Maine. And by the way, I think I have, please correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's not Alan's coffee brandy. It's coffee flavored. That is brand. correct. Okay, Technically, yeah. Just yes. Just to be, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and in <clears throat> no other state, not even New Hampshire, uh, does Alan's coffee brandy even crack the top 100 of best-selling liquors. Um, it is a main phenomenon, if you want to call it that. Uh, there's a guy, Bill Trotter, who's a reporter for the Bangor Daily News. He has written some hilarious articles about the culture, if we want to call it that, of Allen's coffee-flavored brandy. And is this, an, is this across the entire state, or, or is this more of a... So at this point, I think it is across the entire state, but I think it started out as sort of a uh, coastal, down-east fisherman kind of thing. Okay. Um, and yeah, people mix it with milk. They, okay. they drink Allen's and milk. But we're um, talking about like party on a Friday night. We're talking about drinking massive quantities <laughs> of Allen's coffee. It is, that's the other thing. It's not like everybody in the state of Maine is drinking just like a consistent small amount of Allen's coffee flavored brandy. 
it is heavily concentrated among a group of truly extraordinary people. Wow. Um, now, do you know about Moxie? I do. I actually have a. I actually have a bottle of Moxie sitting in my refrigerator in New Mexico. Yeah, okay. Uh, that was. I think it's left over from uh, the girl I'm seeing her birthday from like a I, I don't know some time ago. But yeah, it's been in there. I'd never heard of it. I'm sure but... it has a pretty stable shelf life. Yeah. Uh, so Moxie, for those who don't know, is a bittersweet cola or soft drink in Maine. Uh, some people like it. Other people can't stand it. I recently learned uh, that there is a cocktail that mixes Moxie and Allen's coffee flavored brandy. Uh, and it's called the Burnt Trailer. <laughs> So you might have to try one of those. I'm going to have to try one of those. Can you like, could I like roll down to the the bar over here and order a burnt trailer? I certainly hope so. Okay. I'd be disappointed if the bar wouldn't know what you were talking about. Um, Last question along these lines. Um, I've heard that there's a particular nickname for Alan's coffee flavored brandy. Are you familiar with? There, There are several nicknames for Alan's coffee flavored brandy. Do you care to share them? Uh, my personal favorite is the Champagne of Maine. <laughs> I haven't heard that one. All right, it, that one's bet. That one is um, classier than the than the nickname. That yes, heard. there's there's some other less classy nicknames. Okay. okay, it sounds like you care to just leave it at that. I'm gonna go with the Champagne of Maine. Okay, all right. Um, <clears throat> Portland, mm-hmm. overrated underrated or properly rated these days? I suppose that depends on who and where you ask. Um, I think it's underrated. Uh, It's a great town. It is a really extraordinary place. And, you know, it's it's been interesting for me. I graduated uh, college in 1999. And back then, you know, young, smart, educated Maine kids were leaving Maine. You know, they were, they were going uh, to Boston or New York or someplace else. And now lots of them go to Portland because Portland's a cool little city that's got, you know, great restaurants. It's, you know, got an active social scene. There's a lot going on. I, yeah, I think Portland's great. It is great. Um, By the way, there's a place in Portland, uh, Holy Donut, and you can get an Allen's coffee-flavored brandy donut there. What's what's it called? Is it called like the Allen's? Or... I think it's called yeah, just Allen's coffee flavor brandy donut. <laughs> you have uh, to say all those words. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> they need an acronym. Any anything else, and uh, it's a different donut entirely. Scariest animal experience you've ever had in the parks? So I haven't had a whole lot of scary animal experiences. You um, totally should have lied. <laughs> and talked about the rhinoceros that well, chased you. You know, uh, one time when backpacking in Yosemite, um, you know, I was in my tent and I, you know, heard a rustle outside and I ended up my tent and there was a big black bear, you know, probably five feet away, you know, sniffing at my pack. And, uh, you know, it's one of those moments where I knew a lot about bears in Yosemite. There's never been a fatal bear attack in Yosemite. Bears, they, they're not... These are black bears. They're not grizzly bears. They're not polar bears. They're not vicious. All they want is to get to your people food, right? Um, But there's a difference between knowing that rationally and then seeing a giant animal five feet away from you. (laughs) And what you're supposed to do is, you know, make lots of noise and bang pots and pans and, you know, to, you know, chase it away. 
Um, that's kind of hard to do when you wake up in the middle of the night and there's a big animal just, you know, right there in front of you. So, um, yeah, even with all the knowledge I had acquired, <laughs> it was useless in the actual situation. So ultimately I was able to gather my courage and shout at it and, you know, get it to go away. But, uh, I mean, that's not too scary, right? It's, it's all right. It's all right. Um, so this is my last night in Bar Harbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, where should I go get a drink? Uh, I am a big fan of the Thirsty Whale Tavern. Uh, it is sort of the classic local spot. Um, is that is, where I can get my, what is it, burnt trailer? Yeah, oh, I'm sure you could order, or order a burnt trailer and they would know what you're talking about. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, it's open year-round, which cannot be said of a lot of places in Bar Harbor. A lot of places are just open for you know the summer and the fall. Um, it's got local color. It's a place where locals go, where tourists go. Uh, it's got a classic old feel, you know, a lot of wood paneling, tin roof. And, uh, yeah, it's just a classic. Okay. That's great. Thirsty well. Well, James, this has been great. Uh, I'm grateful for the conversation and, um, you know, we spend a good amount of time at, at Blister, um, paying attention to words and trying to put out useful information. And I've got to say, like, I've really been impressed with, especially the Acadia book that I've looked at the most. And um, like I said, if I can get past the photographs of the Costa Rica (laughs) book, I I look forward to diving in. But even that has just gotten me totally uh, excited about revisiting the place. And um, uh, I appreciate the conversation today. Yeah, well, and it's great to hear that too. You know, a lot of what I try to do is to get people excited about these places and to approach them, you know, from a smarter viewpoint than your sort of typical travel guide. Um, so yeah, to hear somebody like yourself who sees, you know, a lot of information pass across your desk every day, uh, say those things about my guide. I really appreciate that. And I look forward to seeing what, uh, what the next book is. Absolutely. I look forward to bringing it out. (laughs) Well, thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Many thanks to James Kaiser for the conversation and be sure to head to jameskaiser.com to see his work. And thanks, as always, to our strikingly handsome audio engineer, Justin Bob. Justin, which three national parks are you most interested in visiting? I'd like to go to the Grand Canyon, Zion, and Hawaii National Park. Oh, what volcano one? Hawaii Volcanoes is what I was trying to get at. Perfect. Till next time, head over to blisterreview.com to become a Blister member and start getting money-saving deals that literally pay for the price of the membership. You'll also get access to all of the flash reviews that we are going to start putting out from New Zealand, and it will ensure that you get your copy of our print and digital buyer's guide that is coming out soon. Finally, happy 50th anniversary once again to my terrific parents. Immediately after I finished my conversation with James, my parents and I took James's advice to get away from the centennial crowds by hiking up Acadia Mountain. We didn't see a single person on the way up to the summit, and we were rewarded with a spectacular sunset. It was a wonderful moment standing on the summit with my mom and dad, who had introduced me to Acadia and the other national parks so long ago. Thank you, mom and dad, and happy anniversary.